history and politics absolutely talk to each other all the time. If we could study history, we could learn a lot about how we're dealing with each other right now. I would very much echo your call for much more conversation between the two subjects. To understand politics and really to understand any subject, you need to know the history. Hello and welcome to Dead Current, a podcast by History and Politics, where we look at current affairs through the lens of history. My name is Emily Glynn. And I'm Maximus McCabe-Abel, and today we're looking at the role of student activism, protests, and young people's contributions to South African politics, with a specific focus on apartheid, leadership, and the importance of education. We're delighted to be joined by Dr. Anne Heffernan, Assistant Professor in South and Southern African History in the Department of History here at Durham University. Anne's research has focused particularly on the role of students and young people in influencing political trends and changes, especially during the period of apartheid in South Africa. Thank you for joining us and how are you today, Anne? Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. I think the best place to start is probably asking a few general questions about history and politics in South Africa. And as your research focuses particularly on apartheid, how does the very recent history of these years continue to impact politics in South Africa today? That's a great question. Um, I mean, in so many ways, South Africa is a place where history is just ever present in people's daily lives. Certainly the recent, the relatively recent past of apartheid, which only ended in 1994, political apartheid ended in 1994, we would say. And I say that intentionally because many people would argue that socioeconomic apartheid has in fact not ended. Um, So the sort of spatial segregation, where people live, the way that cities and townships are laid out um, is very much a kind of manifestation of apartheid policies in people's everyday lives. And when we look at people's socioeconomic incomes, the vast majority of poor South Africans are black. Um, And even though they're the majority of the population and the vast majority of white South Africans are middle to upper middle to um, upper class. So that sort of disparity still remains a a very sort of real part of everyday life and it is historically rooted. Yeah that's really interesting I think and you know the fact there is a modern imprint of apartheid history in everyday life that is perhaps not just political but you know like you say socioeconomic. Again to touch on another broad theme um, South Africa was indeed one of the many parts of the globe that was colonized by multiple European powers Does this colonial history continue to express itself in any ways in society? Yes. Um, It's interesting. I think in the immediate sort of post-apartheid era in the, from the sort of late 90s and particularly in the early 2000s, um, there was obviously a tremendous amount of effort in South Africa to grapple with its apartheid past, right? To the immediate kind of most recent forms of racial oppression there was less attention to the sort of further back colonial past, although obviously those histories are not unrelated, right? Um, Apartheid as a white minority regime grows out of the fact that it was a colonial settler uh, colony um, in the, well, really from the 17th century, you begin to have white settlement in South Africa and then it becomes a settler colony in the late 18th century. So that, those two pasts are not unrelated, but in terms of the kind of current grappling with them, 
in the early sort of post-apartheid era, there wasn't that much discussion about the colonial past, but that all changed in 2015, 2016, um, when student protests on university campuses around the country began under the banner, first of roads must fall uh, at the University of Cape Town, and then fees must fall at, um, began at the University of the Swatterton, but sort of spread across the country. This is really great context. Um, if, if we were to move on perhaps to your specialism of student activism, young people and education in South Africa. Um, throughout apartheid, it was often young people and students who led the protests. Could you expand a little bit on this maybe for our listeners? Sure, yeah. Um, so apartheid for your listeners lasts, it's such a big thing, but it lasts for, in, in kind of historical terms, not an enormous period of time begins in 1948 and ends in 1994. That is a long time, to be fair. Um, but we can think of it as having sort of different stages. And in the early days, um, you have a lot of sort of mass protest against apartheid that tends to be organized by political movements like the African National Congress, the ANC, which is now the ruling party, um, but also others that are led by adults, right? Even though the ANC has its own youth league, which is a kind of, particularly in the 1940s, a more radical branch of the party and, so, and really pushes it to take up a more radical stance against apartheid. Um, well, first against segregation because the ANC and the ANC Youth League precede official apartheid, and then in the 1950s against apartheid itself. And that involves figures like Nelson Mandela. He comes up through the ANC Youth League, so as a youth activist. But when I say youth, Nelson Mandela was in his 30s when he was in the ANC Youth League. So like there's young and there's young. Um, and later in apartheid, in the 1970s, there's a significant change, and all of a sudden, much younger people are involved in anti-apartheid protest. Um, and that really kind of happens, well, it happens for a variety of reasons, but the, uh, it becomes epitomized by a major event called the Soweto Uprising. So, uh, yeah, we talked about um, young people's contributions. So um, how important were student voices? Student voices were hugely important because schools and universities were certainly in the earlier days one of the key areas that you could organize young people, right? Um, that, that's where young people gathered. That's where they had um, both the sort of free time to engage in politics and political discussions and, and thinking about political organization um, and also where they had exposure to a lot of new types of ideas. They were be able to read political literature. Um, although in the context of apartheid South Africa, quite a lot of political literature is banned. There's still a roaring trade in people handing round Marx and Engels, and a little bit later, you can get copies of Fanon and things. Um, Steve Biko writes pamphlets, and these things circulate even though it's illegal to have them. Um, and so all of that happens is facilitated in either in the spaces of schools or through the networks that schools and universities 
develop. That's how students and young people get to know one another, get to make connections um, beyond their immediate like, community, if that makes sense. And you touched before slightly on um, the Sweater Uprising, which is perhaps one of the most remembered protests at the time and is actually remembered each year around its anniversary. For our listeners, could you perhaps expand on the uprising and its place in the timeline of South African history? Yeah. So the Soweto Uprising happens in June of 1976. It begins on June the 16th. And as you mentioned, June the 16th is now a national holiday in South Africa. It's called Youth Day. And that is really significant because that speaks to how inextricably linked the generation of Soweto students in 1976 is to the idea of youth activism in kind of South Africa's consciousness writ large. When you speak about youth activism, the kind of default setting is to think that you're, th you're speaking about 1976. And that's because in 1976, school children, and I mean school children, people, people in secondary school and even in um, what were called junior secondary schools in South Africa, so sort of kids who were 11, 12, were marching in the streets. And the reason that they decided to embark on this protest march, it was a peaceful protest march, was because the government had decided that um, the language of Afrikaans, which is uh, sort of evolved from Dutch, but is, it's, it's its own language. Um, the language of Afrikaans, which was one of two official languages of the state along with English, should be a teaching medium in classrooms. So students already had to take Afrikaans classes, but basically this meant that now they were going to have to take 50% of their other classes in Afrikaans. So they were going to have to learn maths in Afrikaans or biology in Afrikaans or history in Afrikaans. And you're talking about, um, in the case of Soweto, all black children, um, all black teachers, because the whole, the entire education system is segregated. These are not people for whom Afrikaans is their mother tongue. And the party that's in power, the National Party, is an Afrikaner nationalist, na nationalist party. There's a very sort of strong sense that Afrikaans is the language of the oppressor. So all of this kind of comes to a head in June of 1976, and students in a few different Soweto schools organize themselves um, and decide that they're going to march through the streets of Soweto um, to stage a protest against this imposition. But it's brutally policed. Um, the police come out with dogs and guns, and fire into the crowd, some of, um, immediately, um, at least one young man, Hector Peterson, well, immediately, quite soon, Hector Peterson, who's 13 year, years old, is shot and killed. Um, over the course of the day, many protesters are killed. The, the numbers range quite widely. Um, the numbers that the state put out initially, right after the protests, were in the sort of 20s. But some historians over the sort of first day and then subsequent couple of days have estimated that numbers could have been as high as 700 people being killed in this way to uprising. So it becomes this 
sort of astonishing specter of the police firing on school children who are peacefully protesting. Um, and because of that is a catalyst for uprisings around the country. It prompts international outrage. Um, this winds up on the front page of The Guardian. It winds up on the front page of The New York Times. All of a sudden, the atrocities of apartheid are being brought into people's living rooms and onto their kitchen tables and really sort of prompts a pushback at a number of different levels. Um, and so it's what, that's one of the reasons why we think of it as a pivotal moment in the anti-apartheid struggle. Things change after 1976 because of the Soweto uprising. And with the Soweto uprising also being uh, remembered through its anniversary each year, how do you think memories such as this impact South African identity now? That's a great question. Um, I think in a number of different ways, memories impact, memories of student protests in the past impact South African um, understandings of their history. Um, so one thing that's very interesting, I think, about the, the June 16th holiday of Youth Day is that I lived in South Africa before I moved to Durham. And for most of the time I lived there, Youth Day was about um, sort of like cut price drinks at clubs and big parties and going out and, and having fun. It's a, it's a public holiday. Um, and you would always have sort of a, a remembrance of what happened in Soweto in the newspapers and things, but it was really about cutting loose and having fun. And a lot of commentators would, I mean, kind of year on year, you'd listen to the radio and commentators would say, you know, the youth of today are apolitical. They don't have any sort of political consciousness. It's not like 1976. 1976 was the pinnacle of sort of youth activism in South Africa. And that changed in late 2015 and 2016 when a new sort of protest movement spearheaded by young people began. And it was interesting because it really sort of jarred that perception of an apolitical youth, which was a misperception, I think. Like, it's, it's important to say that. That was never accurate. But it was the, 1976 was always the benchmark for youth activism. And people looking at it from the outside said, oh, well, they're not measuring up. But in 2015, 2016, students took direct action. They began to protest on their campuses. They marched, they shut down campuses. And they did so with a lot of kind of conscious reference points to the past and to 1976 in particular, because that was the kind of touch point for youth politics. So if you look at some of the placards that people carried during Roads Must Fall and Fees Must Fall, you'll see a lot of references to 1976 and to Soweto. I saw one that said 1976 reloaded. Um, you'll see ones that accuse that generation of having sold out, um, having sort of aspired to a better South African future, but then because by the time we're in the early 21st century, that generation of students from 1976, many of them are in power in the country. Um, this new generation was criticizing them for not sort of fulfilling the promise of those earlier protests. So there's a real interesting conversation happening between the present and the past about who are the rightful student protesters in South Africa, who's sort of the 
who, who gets to claim that, I think. So if we're going to move on a little bit to education, uh, how important would you say that educating young people was uh, as a factor in the dissolution of apartheid? I think very important. Um, I think education happens in so many different ways, right? It happens in classrooms. I'm a teacher, so I hope it happens in classrooms. Um, but I have to admit that probably the most important education doesn't happen in classrooms. And I think that that was probably the case in terms of raising people's political consciousness during apartheid. I mentioned that a lot of materials were banned. Um, so obviously none of that was accessible to students in formal educational spaces. Um, but also the curriculum was very tightly controlled by the government uh, because the whole educational system was segregated by race. There was a separate governmental department, the Department of Bantu Education, that was in charge of administering black schools and black universities separately from white schools and white universities. And so they had separate curricula. Um, they learned different things because the government wanted them to learn different things. It wanted them to be prepared for particular types of jobs and not for other ones. It had all of these kind of bizarre pedagogical ideas about race-based education. So all of those things are structuring kind of how education is happening in the classrooms, but they get subverted in all sorts of interesting ways because you have, in some cases, teachers who are either very politically active themselves or just recognize that this is a fundamentally sort of wrong and broken system. And so they subvert it in different ways, sometimes by um, bringing in that kind of banned literature uh, where they can and where it's relatively safe to do so and they don't think they're going to get arrested. Um, having sort of clubs for um, either explicitly political discussions, but potentially not. I mean, I'm a history professor. History is a topic where politics is sort of deeply enmeshed in it. So if you're looking at the history of South Africa, you can't help but think about the political implications of it. So talking with students about that history, talking with students about current affairs, um, looking at the newspapers in a critical way, these are all things that people were doing to raise political consciousness amongst students um, and to really good effect. So would you say that um, the effects of this education is, um, is still palpable in South Africa um, as part of its national identity? Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a good point. So as I mentioned, many of the people who were student activists in the 1970s and then in the 1980s when things get even crazier and you have mass marches in the street with some regularity, many of those people are now in places of, in sort of positions of political power. Um, right now, the president of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, was a student activist at university in the 1970s. Then he becomes a trade unionist in the 1980s. Um, and that's true if you look at many people in the cabinet in the sort of provincial legislatures. So I think you have the effects of that education um, in, in the kind of administration of South Africa itself now. Um, I think 
Also, you probably have a legacy for South African school students. I, I think this is true. I hope it's true. Um, of the importance of understanding your history um, because of its impact on the on the politics of today. And looking further at some of these comparisons, um, in one of your articles, I read that ideological affiliations like Africanism, charterism and black consciousness shaped the political boundaries of student and youth groups then uh, in South Africa. And you said that these continue to inform contemporary youth politics. Could you expand on this and why maybe that, that is? Sure. Thanks for reading that. <laughs> Did your homework. Uh, yeah, so we talk about the anti-apartheid movement as though it's one big thing. And in some ways it was because there was a lot of solidarity that informed it. Um, and that was really important for it to work. But it's also not one big thing at all. It's a lot of different groups participate, all kind of working towards the end of undoing apartheid, but with very different ideas about how that should be done. Um, and to some degree different ideas about why it should be done, but particularly about the how, about the sort of tactics. And understanding how race should be dealt with in terms of responding to apartheid, because it's obviously at the very crux of what apartheid is. So groups like the ANC um, and some of its compatriots were would describe themselves as charterist, which refers to a document called the Freedom Charter that was drafted in 1955. But the important thing to know about the charterists is that they were what they described as multiracial, which meant that they thought that all of the different racial, racial groups in South Africa should collaborate to try to end apartheid. Um, and so that's really a rebuttal of the segregation that apartheid itself imposes. Other groups disagreed or understood that differently. So one sort of ideological strain, Africanism, um, which is espoused by the PAC, the Pan-Africanist Congress, which is the first big breakaway from the ANC in the 1950s. And the reason the PAC breaks away is because they think actually that black people need to take the lead in challenging apartheid because apartheid fundamentally most oppresses black people and that when white people get involved in this they have a tendency to take things over um, which is probably not an unfair assessment but um so you've got those two kind of big strands and then later you have the development of black consciousness which is a much more kind of philosophical stance and kind and reconceives of what is included within black Black consciousness argues, no, black actually is a term that should be referred, should be used to understand everybody who has been discriminated against by apartheid based on their race. So it also includes Indian South Africans and colored South Africans. And so it envisions a sort of collaborative project, but, a, but in a different way than the multiracialism of charterism. And those divisions and those parties, to some degree, still exist today, right? So they've come through the transition away from political apartheid um, into post-apartheid South Africa. 
Yeah, that was really interesting. Thanks. Um, well, obviously, youth are hugely significant in driving lots of today's protest movements, uh, political campaigns, um, as we've recently seen with the Black Lives Matter, um, particularly where like the mantra of educate yourself is um, become one of the most widely circulated in, um, in combating modern racism. Do you think it's helpful to look to the black consciousness movement um, in South Africa as inspiration or are there dangers or drawbacks to doing this? Um. Yes and yes. I think it's useful to look to it, but also we should not look to it uncritically um, or be uninformed about what we're looking at when we look at Black consciousness. But Black consciousness has had a reprisal in South Africa um, in the last sort of five years after basically kind of being, uh, I don't know, kind of winding up in the political wilderness maybe uh, after the sort of triumph of multiracialism in the ANC, it went by the wayside. It had no real political standing in terms of like mounting a party that, that won seats in parliament. But it got picked up as an ideology, again, by this new generation of student leaders who are reading some of the writings of people like Steve Biko um, and how he's conceiving politically of black as being a more inclusive term. Um, and really adopting that. So if you look at, for instance, the Manifesto of Roads Must Fall, they explicitly use Biko's language on how they define Black. Um, so I think there are real, real things that can support contemporary movements um, and build solidarity, particularly in a, when we're thinking about anti-racist protests today in um, the context of Black Lives Matter. Black consciousness has a lot to tell us. Black consciousness as it existed in the 1970s also was uh, not great on, for instance, intersectionality. It was a pretty masculine and male-dominated movement. So there, I, I would add a note of caution to looking back to a, a political praxis of the 1970s and importing it wholesale into the early 21st century. I don't think anybody who is, who is kind of grappling with it is doing that. I think they're, they are quite sort of critical and reflective and they're reading black consciousness thinkers alongside a lot of other theorists um, to try to inform their, their politics. And of course, we've talked here um, about student activism at quite some length, but also the country's leadership is an important factor to discuss as well. Do you think that the end of apartheid came more from a top down from its leadership or bottom up from people like students and protesters? I think that you can't really extricate the two. Um, the end of apartheid is like, how did, a, how did apartheid end or why did apartheid end is a great exam question because it's really multifaceted and there is no one right answer. Um, so to that end, I think it could not have happened without the pressure that was generated by mass movements throughout South Africa, by people taking to the streets. So I mentioned, I described the Soweto uprising in some length, and then I mentioned briefly that that kind of happens writ large throughout the country in the 1980s. There's a period when Oliver Tambo, who was the head of the ANC in exile, called for the country to be made ungovernable. And a lot of particularly young people 
try to take him up on that. Um, and you have in some of the townships liberated zones where they're effectively not controlled by the apartheid state or the police anymore. Um, so that puts a tremendous amount of pressure on the state. They have to call two different states of emergency in the late 1980s because things are just getting unmanageable. But at the same time, you can't underestimate the sort of top top down um, elite level and, and international level politics that are informing this. Mandela and some of the other leaders are very strategic and they understand the position. So earlier in the 19, or in the, from the mid to late 1980s, there are a number of overtures made to him, particularly to negotiate his release because the apartheid state understands that's gonna be a PR coup for them, that they can say they've released Nelson Mandela. There's a big international movement saying release Nelson Mandela, it's on t-shirts. Um, and he says, no, not, not until it's unconditional, because they wanted in exchange for that release, all sorts of political concessions and for him to stop the, un to try to stop the ungovernability, right? Um, and so I think you have very strategic leadership um, within parties like the ANC, you have mass protests in the in the streets. And without that, I don't think any of the other things happen. So I that I think is an important thing to recognize. You don't have the international pressure because you don't get the sense and you don't you don't see the atrocity of apartheid unless people are out there actively protesting against it and being victimized by it. Um, and and then, of course, you have international politics, um, pressure from allies like the US and the UK. You have the fall of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War, which really changes regional politics in Southern Africa. Um, so it's a whole melting pot of things that gets us, gets us to 1994 and the first um, democratic elections. Obviously, and the ANC is the current ruling political party in um, South Africa. It has been since the election of Nelson Mandela in 1994, and it's won every election since then. Um, so what makes him such an electoral success? Well, the ANC is the party of liberation, right? And so if we look at other African countries that have come through struggles against colonialism um, as an analog for apartheid, that electoral longevity of the party that kind of emerges triumphant from liberation is not so unusual. The sort of obvious comparison here would be Zimbabwe and ZANU-PF, um, but there are many others if we look at other African countries. Um, so I think that's, that's one thing, that your liberation credentials still matter in South African politics. Uh, and that's a big part of why people keep voting for the ANC. But I think they're starting to matter less. Um, and so in the last four years, I think the municipal elections in 2016, we first began to see this kind of chipping away. The ANC lost a number of major metropolitan cities. So they haven't held um, any position of significant power in either Cape Town or the Western Cape since the early 2000s, 2005, 2006, something like that. 
But in 2016, they also lost um, Pretoria, Johannesburg. They had to go into a coalition government. They had to go into a coalition government in Port Elizabeth. So we're beginning to see that enduring longevity chip away. Um, and I think that's because people are not only judging the ANC on its liberation credentials, they're judging it on its governing ability and what it's done in their lives and whether it's done that well or not. And if we look at the ANC's record, they've done some things very well and they've done some things really quite badly. Um, so I think, I think we're beginning to see that sort of uh, almost, I don't want to call it a stranglehold because South Africa isn't a one-party state. There are still um, free and fair elections. There are many opposition parties and they're allowed to campaign freely and they do get respectable percentages of the vote. Um, but we're beginning to see the, the strong majority of the ANC wane. Yeah, so what do you think um, of the current president, um, Ramaphosa, what do you think, what kind of political legacy does he have to live up to? Well, he, so Ramaphosa became the president after Jacob Zuma, um, which is both an extremely hard position because he, they've, again, they're both from the ANC. So he's, it's the same party, but very different factions of the ANC, um, very different governing styles and sort of ideologies underpinning. Of course, as with everywhere else in the world, once COVID-19 happened, that became much more dire. This is a time when you need a good safety net and South Africa had much less of one. And so Ramaphosa is in a, a very difficult position where he has to chart a course in unprecedentedly difficult times um, coming out of a, a really sort of tough situation. I think his reputation is still as a, as a good manager, but this is a tough thing to manage. So what do you make of um, South Africa's response to the pandemic? Because obviously they've had one of the most stringent lockdowns in the world, bans on exercise, cigarettes, alcohol. Yeah, um, well, I was at first quite relieved I wasn't there for it. My friends were all stuck inside um, and couldn't even go out as, as we could for the one hour of exercise. Um, I, the, the reasoning behind it was because South Africa's, some of South Africa's infrastructural systems are uh, weaker than in, in the UK or in the US, for instance, and, and healthcare in particular, the logic particularly behind the ban on cigarettes and alcohol was to try to alleviate pressure on the hospitals. So those are two things, alcohol in particular, that result in a lot of people winding up in hospitals thing, through things like drink driving, through injuring themselves, um, through domestic violence where alcohol is a contributing factor. So they were trying to take pressure off the hospital system. Um, and that appears to have worked. And certainly initially, they were quite late in having a COVID peak. The really stringent lockdown early on kept that at bay. And the hospitals seemed to be coping pretty well. But as a historian and as a historian of South Africa, there are 
their deep legacies of controlling particular types of substances, particularly things like alcohol and cigarettes that are considered um, by some people, I suppose, vices, but also recreational um, substances for pleasure that goes back, there's a history of controlling those things that goes back a very, very long way and that's deeply racialized. So I think when you put in a ban on those things, that resonates with a history in South Africa in a very particular way that it might not somewhere else and that we can't forget that. Um, so while I understood the, the logic of it, um, and I mean, it's not my place to decide whether or not what they're doing is right or, not, or wrong, but it did seem to work. I also am, am very conscious of, of the legacy that it, it taps into. And talking about government responses to public health crises, um, former President Thabo Mbeki's reputation was marred by his disastrous response to the HIV crisis. In what ways do you think um, the current government is avoiding predecessors' mistakes to a public health crisis? Yeah, um, it's a good question. I think one thing that, so Mbeki's response to HIV initially was, was absolutely disastrous. Um, but then after a major sort of uh, public campaign led by a civic action group called the Treatment and Action Campaign, um, South Africa improved its response and actually developed quite an effective mechanism for addressing HIV AIDS in the country through, I mean, distributing antiretroviral drugs, but on a writ large scale through clinics right across the country. So right into the, the very rural reaches of South Africa. And that I think has an important legacy for COVID because you have a, a system of healthcare provision, public health kind of provision on the ground that exists in a way that you don't necessarily in other African countries. The, the infrastructure that resulted after the, the debacle has been useful. People have a local clinic, they know where it is, they're used to being able to go there and get treatment and get antiretrovirals without paying if, if need be. Um, so I think that has been a boon in the pandemic. So I think that maybe with an eye to the past of having ignored another deadly pandemic um, and not, not acted appropriately or quickly. And if now maybe we could step back slightly as somewhat of a conclusion and look at the main theme of the podcast, which was history and politics in relation to um, South Africa. Do you think history and politics is something that should be promoted or is it perhaps more than it's worth? Oh, well, as a historian who studies political history, I think everybody should be very concerned about history and politics. Um, and I mean, I work on very recent history. So as I've, as we've talked about this, the whole, po the whole podcast, I see the his the recent history of South Africa's past very much sort of imprinted on and woven through its present. And I think that when you can understand that and those resonances, it makes you able to respond to the political present in different ways. So I think it's, it's very important.
And um, do you feel like the comparisons between the past and the present, are they, um, are they useful aid to modern politicians and decision makers? Or would you view it more as a handicap that promotes backward thinking? I don't think it's a handicap. Um, I would say looking to the past for lessons is always useful, but that we should always be wary about just sort of writ large taking something that worked in the past and then imposing it on our present. Contexts are different. History doesn't actually repeat itself. Thank you very much, Anne. I hope you've enjoyed this as much as we have. And thank you to everyone listening at home. Don't forget to look out for our next podcast, as well as other events, articles and videos on our website and Facebook. And please like our page for more content on history and politics. Thanks for listening. <laughs>